Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za So this message is called an exhortation to husbands. Pastor Lalo gave it that title. And I said to him last night, I said, I'm not giving an exhortation to husbands. I'm giving multiple exhortations to husbands. So it's called an exhortation, but it's going to be more than a few. The English Puritan, and I hope you do read the Puritan writers when you have opportunity, the English Puritan Henry Smith, no relationship to me as far as I know, he wrote this, First, a man must choose his love, and then he must love his choice. See what he's saying? You choose who you're going to love, choose your love, the woman you're going to love, you choose your love, and then you must love your choice. So the second part is more challenging because we're sinners living in a fallen world. So, we're going to begin in this message returning to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. In a previous message, we looked at Genesis, but we're returning to Genesis, and we're not spending all of our time in Genesis, but we're going to return to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. So as I've said on other occasions, other messages, even though this is a message that is focusing upon the responsibilities of a husband, if you're not a husband, if you're a wife, this is relevant for you because you need to help your husband to fulfill his biblical responsibilities. If you're not yet married, one day you as an unmarried man may be a husband. Hopefully that will be the case. And again, if you're an unmarried woman, one day you may be married to a man. So this is God's word. It's good for all of us, not just for husbands. But the focus is upon husbands. So in Genesis 2, verse 23, we read, And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So these are the first human words recorded in the Bible. Adam's words express joyous astonishment that he is now beholding his helper perfectly suited to all of his needs as a man. Adam immediately recognized that woman was like him. She was not like any of the animals around him. But at the same time, Adam recognized that the woman was unlike him. And so Adam named her, the woman, with a different and yet similar name than his own. 
He, Adam, was taken from the ground, and his name, Adam, in the Hebrew, reveals that. But she was taken from him, the man. And the word in Hebrew is ish, for man. And thus she was named woman, Hebrew, isha. So you see a similar name but different. God graciously gave Adam the helper and companion that he needed. A woman who is part of the substance of his flesh, and yet at the same time, she is distinct from him. She was created, in the original language, literally she was built by God in order to correspond to her husband, to complement him, to be a suitable helper to him. And Adam declared these realities with joy in these words of verse 23. So by way of a practical lesson, even at the very beginning, as Adam was joyously grateful to God for his wife, so every husband is to be joyously grateful to God for his wife. And so husbands, do you thank God with joy for his wise and gracious and sovereign gift of your wife? And are you content with your wife? You should be. You need to be. Do you delight in your wife? You should. Then thank God daily for your wife. Follow Adam's example at this very point where he expressed that joy about seeing his wife. But another practical lesson, Adam's naming of his wife and her being created from the man reveal that he actually had authority over her. Now you may not see that immediately, but just listen here. See from the scriptures what I'm saying. Previously, God brought all the creatures, the animals, to Adam and gave Adam the responsibility of naming them. Adam's naming of the creatures revealed that God had given to him authority and dominion over them. And now God brings the woman he created to Adam and Adam names the woman. Adam's naming of his wife also revealed that God had given him authority and dominion over his wife. There's no sin at this point in time, and women should not regard these words as something negative or oppressive. It's not. Adam was given authority and dominion over his wife. And furthermore, the creation of the woman from the man revealed that the wife is under his authority. She was created from him, but she was created for him. And so the husband is to rule his wife with the authority given to him by God. And that authority is revealed in the pages of the scriptures. The husband is to exercise headship over his wife in and with love and wisdom according to the Bible. His headship over his wife means that she is his functional subordinate. And though the wife is a functional subordinate, this doesn't mean that she is, again, some second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. She's not. 
we must understand and embrace the truth that the headship of a husband... Was that me? We okay? Okay? The sound system didn't like what I was going to say. So we must understand and embrace the truth that the headship of a husband over his wife is not the consequence of the fall. You see, this is before the fall. It's not the creation and consequence of subsequent male chauvinism. Such headship and authority was ordained by an infinitely good and wise God. And you know, men and women, husbands and wives, we need to remember that. The God whom we serve is infinitely good. When we say something is infinite, there's no measure. You cannot measure the goodness of God. I can measure out the water in this glass, but you cannot measure the goodness of God. You cannot measure the wisdom of God. So we need to remember that such headship and authority was ordained by an infinitely good and wise God. And the fall and sin has not changed that God-ordained order. But now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. But I would have you know, the Apostle Paul writing, of course, to the Christians in the church in Corinth, Greece, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, it's very important you understand this verse, and I'm going to quote from two different men concerning this. One man, Charles Hodge, he wrote, we learn from this verse that the woman is subordinate to the man, the man is subordinate to Christ, and Christ is subordinate to God. That's, that's what the verse says. Another man commenting on this verse wrote this, Christ begins and ends Paul's argument, Paul's arrangement. Thus, Christ becomes the paradigm the pattern for both male headship and female submission. Men and women are equally disciples of Christ, but our discipleship is expressed in keeping with our maleness and femaleness. Male disciples learn their headship from Christ, who is their head. Female disciples learn their submission from Christ, who is under the headship of the Father. Now, I don't want to repeat that. It's probably worth repeating. But you see, what Paul is teaching us here is both Christian women and Christian men should learn their roles from this arrangement that God has ordained here in this world, from 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. So husbands... Since you are the head of your wife, can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ abdicating his rule 
as sovereign Lord over all creation. I mean, we don't want to say anything that is wrong or sinful. I'm just saying, can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ reigning in glory, deciding, as it were, I'm no longer going to rule as sovereign Lord over the creation. Well, neither should you as a husband ever abdicate your rule under Christ. You should never abdicate your rule over your wife. Jesus Christ does not do that. He is your example. You are not to abdicate. You know what I mean by abdicate? Say, well, I'll just let my wife do whatever she wants. You know, I'm not going to have anything to say about this. In fact, I'm glad to not have anything to say about it. She can just do what she wants. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to get into a conflict with my wife over this matter. Just let her do what she wants to do. That's abdication. Jesus Christ doesn't do that, and husbands should not do that. Husbands, can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ ruling his kingdom with harshness? You cannot. He does not. And neither should you as a husband rule in your household, rule your wife with harshness. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ being erratic and capricious? Meaning one day the Lord says, well, this is how I'll rule my creation, my world, my universe. But then tomorrow, no, we'll not rule it that way. I'll take a different track. Now, of course, that's not at all what the Lord does. But you see, you are to follow the Lord's example and not rule your wife in an erratic way. One day you tell her, this is the way we're going to run our household. The very next day you change and go 180 degrees and you say, no, we're going to do it this way. That kind of leadership that erratic leadership is not the way a husband should rule his wife or the household. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ refusing to submit to his father's will and commands? He never did that when he was here on this earth. Of course, he will not do it in glory either. But neither should you as a husband rebel against God's commands. Jesus Christ never disobeyed his heavenly Father's commands when he was here on earth, and you are not to obey, disobey God's commands as a husband. You need to embrace your God-given role and obey God in your marriage, and then you will experience joy and blessing. But another lesson, Adam's use of words back in Genesis reveal that he is to be a communicator in marriage. Now, God is the supreme communicator of words, and the revelation of God as communicator begins in Genesis chapter 1, where we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God's verbal communication continues through that first chapter of Genesis in verse 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 14, 15, 20, 22, 24, etc. So you see, the entire Bible is God's verbal communication and revelation of himself and his will to us. 
Adam was created in the image of God, given the capacity of verbal communication, and none of the other creatures were given this ability to speak, for they were not made in the image of God. And in Genesis 2.23, Adam speaks. He speaks to God, and he speaks to his wife. He speaks clearly. He speaks honestly. He speaks transparently. He speaks lovingly. The very thoughts that were in his mind and heart. And you see, husbands, you are to be like Adam prior to the fall into sin. You are to be a communicator with your wife. You are to be like God, the perfect communicator. So husbands, I ask you again another question. Do you unveil your thoughts and your heart to your wife? You see, that's what Adam did prior to the fall. This is bone of my bones. He's saying what he's thinking. Do you as a husband open up your heart to your wife? Do you take the initiative to do that? Or are you annoyed when your wife asks you questions because she's trying to figure out what's going on in my husband's head? What's his thoughts on this subject or that subject? And she asks you questions, not to be a pest, but to to have you speak but you remain silent. This is not what you should be doing. You should be like Adam before the fall, be like God, and communicate to your wife, and of course, listen to her. But now, in Genesis 2, verse 24, turn back to Genesis 2 if you're not there already, and verse 24, we see God's declaration at the first wedding And again, this is all to help us understand a husband's role and responsibility in marriage. Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now some believe that these are Adam's words. Verse 24. Others believe that these are the commentary of Moses who recorded Genesis. Still others believe that God spoke these words. But the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking in Matthew 19, verse 4 and 5, and quoting from Genesis, stated that God actually spoke those words of verse 24 in Genesis 2. So in Matthew 19, we read this, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, so it's God who made them and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, etc. So I think it's right to say really it's God who spoke these words in Genesis 2.24. So let's learn from God's words in verse 24. God has ordained the marriage relationship it must replace the parent-child relationship. You leave father and mother and cleave to your wife. And by implication, of course, the woman must do the same. She must leave and cleave. We've touched on this in an earlier message. I understand that. But I want us to look more closely at the word leave and cleave. The Hebrew word leave means to depart from, to leave behind to forsake. 
You must still honor your father and mother when you get married, but you must leave them behind in one sense. And you are to cleave, and that means to adhere to closely, to be glued together. The Hebrew words translated leave and cleave in Genesis 2.24 are used also in Ruth. So I'd like you to turn to Ruth chapter 1 and verse 14, where these exact same Hebrew words are used in that passage. The ones used in Genesis are used in Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. They vividly illustrate what the husband is to do when he gets married. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 14. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave, or cleaved, unto her. There's our word. Verse 15. And she said, that is, Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her God. Return after your sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Do not entreat me to leave you. There's the Hebrew word, leave you. And to return from following after you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge, etc. So as Ruth left her kinsmen, the Moabites, and would not leave Naomi, but rather clave to Naomi, so a husband is to leave his parents and cleave to his wife. And from the moment a marriage is established, the husband must prefer his wife to his parents. No longer is the husband's first loyalty to be to his father and mother or to any other human relationship, but his first loyalty must be to his wife under Christ. To whom can we be more firmly bound than to fathers that begat us, Matthew Henry wrote, and to the mothers who bore us? And yet, Matthew Henry, the commentator, wrote, the son must quit his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Well, furthermore, we learn from the words, they shall become one flesh, that marriage is to be consummated by sexual union. And notice here that sexual union occurs after marriage, after the marriage covenant, not prior to marriage. The basis or justification for sexual union and intimacy is not romance. It's not emotions. It's not feelings. No, the basis and justification for sexual union is the establishment of a marital, covenantal commitment and union between one man and one woman, a marriage in the presence of God and in the presence of witnesses. Designed and created by God, the physical sexual relationship between a husband and wife is holy, H-O-L-Y, and good, and is to be enjoyed within marriage and within the parameters of the Bible. Sexual union between a husband and wife should not be regarded by either husband or wife as something dirty or disgusting. It should not be something that is avoided, something that is rejected or tolerated. No, it is a gift from God. 
In Hebrews 13, 4, we read, Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, we previously observed from that verse that marriage is to be regarded with honor as something of great value, something precious, like the blood of Jesus Christ. And according to Hebrews 13.4, this is to be the perspective of everyone, not just a few people. But notice that the apostle also states that the marriage bed is the God-ordained place for sexual intimacy. The Greek word that's translated bed makes this plain. The marriage bed, the sexual union between a husband and wife, is undefiled when it is not soiled by the sins of sexual immorality. Now, the apostle who wrote Hebrews previously used the same Greek word, undefiled, so the undefiled bed of marriage, he used that word undefiled to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. In Hebrews 7, verse 26, where we read, For such a high priest became us, holy, guileless, undefiled. So you see, our high priest is undefiled, the Lord Jesus Christ. The marriage bed is also undefiled between husband and wife in marriage. We need to understand that. And dear wives, you need to have that biblical thinking whether you're married or not married, women, you need to think biblically about sexual intimacy, not according to the way the world views it, and men the same. But notice also from Hebrews 13:4, the apostle who wrote that letter states that those who pervert God's created design and order for the fulfillment of their sexuality will, if they continue impenitent, be judged by God. And if you're not there, you should turn to Hebrews 13, 4, so you can see this with your own eyes. Hebrews 13, 4. Those who pervert God's created design and order for the fulfillment of their sexuality will, if they continue impenitent, be judged by God. The writer says, fornicators, those who engage in any form of sexual activity outside of marriage will be judged by God because they have disregarded God's institution of marriage. He mentions adulterers, those who break the marriage covenant by sexual activity with someone other than their spouse. They will be judged by God because they defile the marriage bed. These two primary categories of sexual sin are employed, used by the writer to the Hebrews as what is called a synecdoche. It's a grammatical word, a synecdoche. That is, he uses these two terms, fornicators and adulterers, in order to represent the entirety of sexual sins. So if you're a married man, of course, this is true for unmarried men, but if you're a married man, in other words, if you're viewing pornography, you might justify in your mind, well, I'm not committing adultery. Well, you who are Christians know 
Jesus taught that if you lust after a woman with your eyes, though you've never gone near her physically, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart, with your eyes. And so Paul, excuse me, not Paul, the writer to Hebrews, he uses these two terms just to encompass all sexual sins. Sexual sins destroy marriages. And God is offended by all such sins, and God will judge sinners who commit such sins if they do not repent. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words concerning this passage. Terrible will be their doom when God does judge them. They may think that because they sin in secret, they shall escape punishment, but it shall not be so. Whether men judge them or not, God will judge them. And of course he meant if they continue impenitent. Such sexual sins, even in marriage, can be cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are a married man here today and you have indulged or engaged in some aspect of sexual sins, you need to go to your pastor. You need help. You don't need to continue in those sexual sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away all of those sins when you repent of them, of course, and trust in Christ. So husbands, do not engage in any form of sexual sins. Well, secondly, another lesson here. The one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife encompasses much more than their sexual union. In Genesis 2.24, where we have read about this union of a husband and wife, that must be understood in the light of other scriptures, such as Ephesians chapter 5. So turn now to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. Ephesians 5 verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife clearly quoting from Genesis, and the two shall become one flesh. Ephesians 5.32, This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the church. Now hopefully when you read that in Ephesians 5, your mind has some questions. Paul is quoting from Genesis 2.24, He then asserts in verse 32 of Ephesians 5 that the union of a husband and wife is a great mystery. The mystery of the two being one, Paul says, also relates to the union between Christ and the church. And clearly, the union between Christ and the church is not a sexual union. You understand? The union between Christ and the church, that's not a sexual union. So what is Paul saying here? The union between Christ and his church is a real, living, hard-to-explain union of purpose. And this union of Christ and his church is a great mystery. And a mystery, according to the Bible, is something that was previously hidden, 
but is now revealed and which by its very nature is still hard for us to comprehend. And so the union of a husband and wife as one flesh is a mystery in many ways. They will have a real living, a husband and wife will have a real living, hard to explain union of purpose between them, which goes far beyond the sexual union. Spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, socially, practically, in all areas of life, husband and wife are to be united as one flesh. And since they are mysteriously one flesh, a husband should no longer live as though he was still single and unmarried. I have met Christian men who are married, and they talk at times as though they're not married. And sometimes they act in ways, and you would think, I don't think he, he's not acting like he's married. He wants to always make sure that he has extra time to be with the guys. I'm not talking about you want to go and play basketball or football or something like that with a bunch of men. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But your mindset as a husband should not be, well, I'm married and I'm glad I'm married and it's got a lot of privileges and benefits. But you know what? I like to just spend some time this week with the guys. I really don't want to spend time with my wife. You shouldn't be thinking that way. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. So when you're making of decisions, husbands, you need to include your wife and not act like you're a single man. In financial planning and budgeting as a husband, as a father, you need to include your wife in all of that, not acting like you're unmarried. In social settings, even like this social setting here, you can, as a husband, go and talk to other people. You should do that. But you should never neglect and ignore your wife in social settings, acting as though you're an unmarried man. And in all of your communications with your wife, you need to remember that you are one flesh with her and you need to listen to her. Practical lessons. But now let's move on. God's design and plan for the husband reaffirmed. Turn again to Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22. It's a longer passage that we'll read right now, but it's important. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, be in subjection to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loves his own wife loves himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ also the Church, because we are members of his body. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the Church. Nevertheless, do you also severally love each one his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear her husband? And there we stop our reading. So I said the role of the husband is reaffirmed here because, of course, sin and the fall of man has made a big problem for us. God has made the husband the head of the wife, and God will hold him accountable for that responsibility. A husband may at times unrighteously relinquish his responsibilities as head in his marriage, but this does not alter the fact that God has made him the head of his wife. The wife may not like her husband's headship, but that does not alter the fact that God has made him her head. Husbands, understand these realities. To be the head of your wife means that you are the ruler of your wife, not a harsh ruler, but a loving ruler. It means you have authority over your wife, Again, not ungodly or sinful authority, but biblical authority. You are to be your wife's leader. In Ephesians 1.22, where we read that God has made Christ the head over all things to the church, it's the same word. Christ is the head of the church. You are the head of your wife. In Ephesians 1.22, this word head expresses the idea of Christ's supreme authority. And he exercises that authority over his church. And you husbands are to exercise your authority over your wife and family for the benefit of your wife and family. A husband, as the head of his wife, is to rule as Christ rules in the church. Christ cares for his church, the people of God. Christ loves the church, the people of God. Christ nourishes the church, the people of God. He leads the church, the people of God. That's what he does as a head. And husbands, you are to be that kind of head to your wife and in your family. And remember again that your wife is not your slave. She is not to be treated in a sinful way. She's not to be abused or neglected or harmed in any way. So the role of the husband, he's the head. But secondly, the primary responsibility of the husband is given to us here in Ephesians. And what is the husband's primary responsibility? Out of all of the things that a husband must do in his marriage, in his family, what is the primary responsibility? It is to love your wife. If you're not there, be there in Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, 
Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Verse 28, even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loves his own wife loves himself. Nevertheless, verse 33, do you also severally love each one his own wife? Now notice, first of all, what Paul did not state in these passages. Notice what he did not state. Husbands are exhorted repeatedly to love their wives. Four times in three verses. But Paul did not state, husbands, rule your wives. Now, I've already said you're the head. Part of being the head is to rule. But here in Ephesians 5, the emphasis is not on ruling. Paul is saying your primary responsibility as a husband is to love your wife. Notice, secondly, the meaning of the word love in this passage. Maybe you all know this, but if you do, you're going to hear it anyway. You need to hear it. The word that Paul uses here in Ephesians is the Greek word akapao. Some people say in America, they say agape. They, use, they say it different ways. But it's this specific Greek word which is translated love in this passage. And that Greek word is a love which embraces the judgment and involves the deliberate assent of the will as a matter of principle, duty, and propriety. Now that is actually the definition from Strong's Concordance. This love, this akapao love, embraces the judgment, involves the deliberate assent of the will as a matter of principle, duty, and propriety. So this love is a love of deliberate choice. It is a love as a matter of principle. And any careful study of the Bible will reveal that this love is not just intellectual love, a love of the head. This love does involve the judgment, the head, the mind. But it's not just that. True biblical agapao love will also include the affections, the emotions, and the heart. Why do I say that? Because that same word, agapao, translated love, is used in John 3, 16. No one here needs to turn to that passage. You know what that says. Love in John 3, 16, it's from that same word. And surely the love of God the Father for the world was principled. It was a matter of choice. God the Father's love for the world. It was principle, a matter of choice, a deliberate action on the part of God the Father. It involved, if I can use those words, the judgment and intellect of our Redeemer God. But our Bibles also clearly reveal that God's love for the world was not just a love of the head, not just here, but a love of compassion. 
God has a love of compassion for his world of lost sinners. God's heart of love for the world is an intense love. It is a gracious love. It is a great love. It is a magnanimous love, a compassionate love, a merciful love. And therefore, husbands, your love for your wife must include your head, your judgment, your will, as a matter of principle and duty and propriety, but your love must also include your heart and your affections. And that's not always easily done. When your wife is not very lovable, when you as a husband do not feel affection for your wife, you must remember at that point in time that my love for my wife must be principled. I will choose to love my wife. She's not presently lovable. She's been insubmissive. She's been disobedient. She's not been very warm and loving to me. So I don't feel very loving toward her. At that point in time, you must, as a Christian husband, say, no, I will not follow my feelings. I will do what God says. I will love my wife as Christ loves the church. It's a matter of principle, duty, propriety. It's right. And then you pray and say, Lord, give me that warm affection and compassion, that love of feeling for my wife right now. I don't feel it, but I will love her as a matter of choice and principle. But Lord, I ask you, give me that heart of love that affection and compassion for her right now. You see, Bible truth must instruct and guide your mind, husband. Bible truth must regulate your emotions and your responses to your wife. Bible truth must direct your will, must motivate you, You must be governed, controlled, guided by the Scriptures. And by the grace of God, as you pray for God's sanctifying transformation of your own heart, your affections for your wife will just flourish more and more. And you will love her with this akapao love. So that is your primary responsibility. Your primary responsibility is not to lecture your wife. Your primary responsibility is not to make sure she's submitting to you. She should submit to you, of course. You do need to teach her. Your primary responsibility is to love her as Christ loves the church with his agapao love. And notice, indeed, the pattern and model for the husband in his marriage is Jesus Christ. Turn again to Ephesians 5, verse 25. Ephesians 5 and 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. How? How did Christ love the church? How is Christ to be your pattern and model for loving your wife? 
Well, first of all, Christ loved his church, his bride. Remember, the church is the bride. Christ loved his church, his bride, sacrificially. He left the glories of heaven as the Son of God. He came into this sin-cursed world through the womb of the Virgin Mary and took upon himself flesh and blood and a reasonable soul. And he lived his life on this earth, opposed by sinners. And he willingly denied himself daily for the sake of his people, his bride, his church. You are to willingly sacrifice yourself for your wife. Deny yourself for your wife. And of course, as you know, the Lord Jesus made the supreme sacrifice, dying on the cross for your sins, Christian husband. All of your sins, before you became a Christian, all of your sins since you've been a Christian, all of your sins against your wife as a husband, Jesus Christ made the supreme sacrifice for his bride, and you are to do the same for your wife. You see, selfishness was not the controlling force in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was not the way he thought selfishly. He didn't speak that way. He didn't live that way. He died that those who live should henceforth no longer live unto themselves, but live unto him who for their sakes died and rose again. That is how you as a husband are to live in your marriage. You are to deny yourself. You are to sacrifice yourself for the good of your wife. But secondly, Christ loved his church, his bride, purposefully. Notice this, Christ died with a purpose, verse 26, in order to sanctify the church, to sanctify it through the washing of water with the word. Sanctification means separation unto God in holiness. Sanctification means also to be set apart to serve and worship God. And this is what Jesus Christ did when he came to this world and when he died on the cross. He died in order to sanctify his church, to sanctify his people, to set them apart for God in holiness. And you, husband, must follow Jesus Christ. It must be your determination, God helping you, that you will see your wife become more holy. That's your responsibility, husband. Or if you're not a husband yet, when you become a husband, you are to work and pray and labor to see your wife become more like Jesus Christ. But that's not the only purpose. Another purpose was this. In Ephesians 5.27, we read that Christ purposely loved his church to present the church to himself, 
that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ will, in the consummation of all things at his return, present the church to himself as his perfected bride, glorious, full of splendor. Christ will give the bride away to himself and take the bride to himself on that great and final day. And the church will be on that final day spiritually and ethically perfect, sinless, manifesting the glory of God. It will be a church without spot, without wrinkle, without any blemish. The church's splendor on that final day will be unsurpassed without equal. Similarly, a husband is to labor and love his wife so that she will become brilliant in purity with nothing to mar her moral beauty, nothing that will deform her or defile her. Husbands must have this goal of Jesus Christ in his mind as he purposefully loves his wife. A husband must be always preparing his wife for that final day of presentation, that final day of judgment. But thirdly, Christ loved his church, his bride, faithfully, faithfully. According to God's original design for marriage at creation, marriage is to be monogamous. A truly monogamous marriage is a marriage which is characterized by comprehensive faithfulness. Sexually, yes, faithfully, sexually pure. But husbands, you are to be faithful to your wife in all areas of life. You are to love your wife faithfully. You are to love her as Christ loves his church, his people. You are to be loyal to your wife. You are to be trustworthy as a husband. You are to be dependable as a husband. You are never to abandon your wife. You are to persevere with your wife through trials. And unmarried men, when you get married, God will bring trials into your married life. He will. God is more concerned with you becoming like Jesus Christ than he is with your personal happiness. Now, God is not some mean God who wants you to be miserable but he uses trials to make you more like Jesus Christ. And therefore, husbands, you must never abandon your wife, no matter what the trials may be. I told you sometime, I think it was last night, it's getting fuzzy in my brain, that I have a deaf daughter. Statistically, most deaf children are born to hearing parents. Statistically, most of those hearing parents with a deaf child, those marriages end up in divorce. Statistically, 
because the man, the husbands, the father of the deaf child doesn't want to be bothered, abandons, divorces his wife, leaves the deaf child with the wife. That is what normally happens, at least in America. You see, that's a trial to have a deaf child. Whatever the trial may be, you do not have the right to just abandon your wife. You must be faithful with your wife. Jesus Christ never breaks his words of promise to his bride. And you must not break your promises to your bride. Well, some additional practical instructions for husbands. You are to teach your wife the word of God and lead her spiritually. We see that also in Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify it, the church, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word. As Jesus Christ cleanses the church by the washing of water with the word, so a husband is to use the word of God and the gospel to instruct his wife so that you will become more like Jesus Christ. That is your responsibility and your privilege, husband, to teach your wife the word of God. And when you survey the life of the Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples, it is very plain that Jesus was continually instructing his disciples with the word. Think of one passage, Luke 24. You don't need to turn there, you'll know it. Luke 24, verse 27. This is after the resurrection, before the ascension to heaven. The Lord is walking on the road to Emmaus. He's there with some disciples. And we read in Luke 24, 27, and beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that would have been a wonderful Bible study. That's what he did for his disciples. Husbands, that's what you are to do for your wife. You're to instruct her with the word of God. But of course, how can you do that if you're not reading the Bible each day yourself? You have to be reading the Bible each day. And you are to pray for your wife. The Lord Jesus in John 17 prayed for his bride, the church. You are to pray for your wife. You are to protect your wife spiritually and practically. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, he said to the soldiers, all who came to arrest him, he said to them, I told you I am he. I'm the one you want. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. You see, he was protecting his disciples. And you, husband, are to protect your wife spiritually and practically. You are to provide for your wife spiritually and practically. No man ever hated his own flesh, nourishes and cherishes his own flesh. Your wife is your own flesh. You are to provide for your wife. Yes, materially, but spiritually, practically. You are to love your wife with a love which transcends all human relationships, as we've already seen. Leaving your parents, cleaving to your wife. You are to love your wife with sexual intimacy. We've already seen that. You are to show affection and sensitivity in your attitudes, in your words, 
your deeds. You know, husbands can say a lot to their wives without saying anything. Or, you know, tapping the foot. Or just looking bored. Or it's obvious your mind is somewhere else. Your wife can see it on your face. You're not looking bored. You're not tapping your feet. You're not folding your arms. But she can see there's this glazed look on your face. Your mind is clearly somewhere else. You're not listening. That is self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is sin. It's sin. You are to show affection and love and sensitivity toward your wife at all times in your attitudes, with your words, and with your behavior. You are to be trustworthy to your wife in every area of life. Remember how Jesus, in giving a parable, said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will set you over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You as a husband are to be trustworthy in every area of your life with your wife. In the little things of your married life. In the big things of your married life. You know, people will not be brave and courageous in dangerous situations in life as a Christian if they're not brave and dangerous in the little situations of life. And you will not be trustworthy and faithful to your wife in the big issues of life, the big trials of life in your marriage, if you're not trustworthy and faithful in the little things. So your wife asks you, Honey, please, Put the toilet seat down after you go to the bathroom. We all laugh, but I mean, my wife said to me at, when we were married for a couple of weeks, she said, honey, after you go to the bathroom, would you please put both the seat and the lid down? To which I wrongly said, as a newly married man, I said, why? I, I didn't understand. She said, it's gross. Just put the seat down and the toilet lid down. And my heart attitude was sinful. I was like, what is the big deal? I think I actually probably said that wrongly, sinfully. She said, honey, please, it's just gross. Would you please just do it? So from that point, we weren't even married a month. We've been married 40 years. I always, in my home, and generally in other people's homes, I do that. What's the, what is the big deal? Is it, I mean, why should I not do that? It's just a little thing. He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. You may say, well, that's a stupid illustration. Well, maybe it is a stupid illustration, but hopefully it gets the point to you. Be faithful in little things. My wife said to me on another occasion, early in our marriage, Honey, when you take your socks off, 
would you please write them? You know, you, you take them off and they're inside out. You throw them in the dirty laundry. And I end up having to undo them that way. And again, my attitude was sinful. It's like, please, can't you just do that for me? But that's selfish. So I always do that, I, by God's grace. And I don't do it with regret or a bad attitude. I, I do these things. I say, you know, this is such a little thing. But if you're going to be faithful in the big things of loving your wife when you're told that your child is going to die before your child reaches the age of two. It may be a fault that I bring too much autobiographical information. But I've told some of you, my wife and I have adopted three children. When our first child born to us was three months old, something was wrong. And we were told after examination and tests, she had a rare genetic disease. And my wife and I are carriers of this rare genetic disease. And we were told she will not live to be two. She died the day after her first birthday. I don't say that for you to pity me. I'm saying it by way of illustration. Because I turned my socks right side out, because I put the toilet lid down, because I taught my wife the Word of God and still do, because I pray with my wife, all by the grace of God, Jeff Smith is not a super saint. Becoming a pastor doesn't make you a super saint. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith alone, in Christ alone, the blood of Christ alone, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But husbands, if you would be able, as I had to, My wife wanted eight children before we got married. Faithful in little, you're faithful in the big trials of life. Because, of course, this was a very difficult trial. To watch your daughter deteriorate and then die and then bury her. I needed my wife's love. I needed to love my wife. I needed to deny myself. I needed to deny myself daily through the midst of such a very difficult trial. 
to love my wife as Christ loves me, as Christ loved her, as Christ loves the church. Men, husbands, you need to be faithful in the little things daily, and then you will be enabled to be faithful in the huge problems and troubles and difficulties and trials that God sovereignly and graciously and wisely brings into your life. You need to be faithful in the little things and then faithful in the big things. You need to love your wife as Christ loves the church. You need to talk to your wife. Open up your heart to your wife. Listen to your wife. This is what friends do. Jehovah spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaks unto his friend. Jesus said in John 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his Lord does. But I, Jesus said, have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known unto you. You see, Jesus disclosed truth to his disciples because he loved them. True friends, and that's what a husband and a wife must be, true friends under Christ, must communicate, must be candid, must be constant, must show consideration one for another. The Lord Jesus Christ can enable you to do that. Thomas Boston, and I close with this illustration, Thomas Boston, you may know that name, you may not. He was a pastor who lived in Scotland in the early 1700s. His wife's name was Catherine. They were married in the year 1700. They dearly loved one another. But throughout their marriage, they frequently experienced many trials, afflictions, and heartaches. As one example, only four of their ten children lived to be adults. Only four. And because of this, Catherine eventually descended into a severe mental depression. It distorted her sense of reality. It left her prey for distressing inward fears. And that condition was complicated by her poor health. She was an easy target for Satan concerning her assurance of salvation. She struggled many times, but God supported her, and Thomas Boston wrote this about his wife, Catherine. Nevertheless, in that complication of trials, the Lord has been pleased to make his grace in Catherine shine forth more bright than before. And after she died, Thomas Boston wrote this, She was a woman of great worth, whom I therefore passionately loved and inwardly honored, a stately, beautiful, and comely, godly woman, fearing the Lord, patient in her tribulations and under all her personal distresses. You see what he said, a woman of great worth, whom I therefore passionately loved, 
Husbands, do you love your wife as Thomas Boston loved his wife, Catherine? More importantly, do you love your wife as Christ loves the church? Only God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only the triune God can enable any husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And the triune God does do that for Christian husbands. So may God help you as men to indeed fulfill your primary responsibility to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask that our hearts, our minds, our attention would be focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending your Son into this world to live and to die for his people. We thank you that his blood continually cleanses away all our sins. And we pray that you would enable every husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church. We pray that you would establish more godly marriages even as a result of this conference. We cry out unto you, our God, for this is the great need in South Africa, in America, in the world, that the world looking on would see what it is to love a wife as Christ loves the church. Lord our God, we pray, use godly marriages to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ before our needy world. Answer our prayers because we come in his worthy name and receive our thanksgiving from our hearts for your mercy, grace, and love. In Jesus' name, amen.